happy Saturday. It's March 25th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your editors at Airmail that are very, very happy that spring, maybe, perhaps, has arrived. It's arrived here. It's warmer than ever. 60 degrees today, so... Quick loading, Michael. I'm still in Fair Isle. It's gray out there. <laughs> anyway, maybe I should never have moved. <laughs> Once again, you've given me the t-shirt. Quit gloating. I'm still in Fair Isle. Ashley Baker. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. We have a great issue. We've got great television coming your way. A fabulous new show from Anna Wanger called Transatlantic. And Anna's going to join us today to tell us all about it. Michael, what else do we have on the show? You're right. We've got a lively show. We've got Andrew Rifkin, who's going to be joining us from Tel Aviv with his report on how one year into the Ukraine war, Vladimir Putin and more than a few of his rich Russian friends are managing to avoid sanctions. Then, as you mentioned, speaking of war and its impact, Anna Winger will join us from Berlin. She created the limited series that we all loved, Unorthodox, and she's joining us to talk about her timely and terrific new effort, a black comedy set during World War II. And then, a real treat, John Lahr has a report on the smash hit restaging of a beloved American musical that has West End audiences dancing in the aisles and screaming for encores. Just like I'm screaming for an encore with you every week, Ashley. That's where I am. Where do you want to begin, Ashley? Ah, we should start with good old-fashioned television, Michael. We have Anna Winger here. Anna Winger is the subject of a profile in the issue this week by Alexandra Marshall. And Anna is an American writer, producer, screenwriter, and photographer. She lives in Berlin. And she's the creator of some of our favorite television dramas, Deutschland 83, Deutschland 86, Deutschland 89, and Unorthodox. And she is here to tell us all about her new show, set in the south of France, What's Not to Love, in 1940. Welcome, Anna Winger. Anna, we have to start by saying thank you for Unorthodox, which got not only Michael and I, but many of our listeners for those first horrible few months of the pandemic. So thank you for that. That's sweet. You're welcome. Thank you. Were you surprised by the success of that particular story? I mean, it's those things are, it's always so hard to respond to that kind of, that question, which I'm often asked because I loved the book so much and I was so taken with the story myself and taken with Shira's performance. And the project was such a labor of love that I guess I was thrilled that other people loved it as much as I did, but I wasn't exactly surprised that they loved it because I had loved it. Sometimes when you're making something, you have to first make it for yourself and for the people you're making it with. And we were all so engaged in it that it was exciting that other people kind of joined us on that journey. One of the things I loved about the show is that it captured this national mood, which of course none of us were expecting when I'm sure you weren't expecting when you created it, but you had the story of this woman who was escaping such a narrow, confining universe, finding freedom in Berlin. And then all of a sudden we're all locked down as we're watching it. And as Alex Marshall reports in her interview with you, it seems like you've done this again with Transatlantic. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where the show is set and what it's all about? So Transatlantic is inspired by a true story, which is about Varian Fry and the Emergency Rescue Committee. Varian Fry was a young man from New Jersey who at the time was 32 years old. He had gone to Harvard. He was a journalist and a group of German and expatriates who were living in New York, like famous ones, Albert Einstein, Thomas Mann, who were in exile in America, got together and tried to figure out how to get their friends, other well-known academics and writers and artists and some politicians out of Europe at that moment. This is set in 1940. 
And Varian Freival is actually the only person who volunteered for the mission of going over to Marseille, where everybody was bottlenecked after the fall of Paris and trying to find the people on the, a list of 200 people and help them get visas to the United States. So he went over and he connected with a group of other young people who were figuring out how to get people out. And he formed this loose collective of people who ended up getting not just the 200 people, but actually more than 2,000 people out of Marseille, many of them over the Pyrenees in a little bit more than a year. So the story is set in a very specific moment in World War II history, which is to say right before the United States entered the war. So it was a time when things were really not looking good. Northern France was fascist. Italy was fascist. Spain, Germany, of course. And Britain was getting flattened by Nazi bombs. And it was just looking really bad, right? And in effect, Britain was fighting the Nazis alone at that time. And they were sending sort of early intelligence officers, the special operations executive into France to try and uh, stir up resistance and try to fund resistance cells. And into this space came all the artists and writers and musicians and movie stars and all kinds of people who had been in Paris were stuck in Marseille trying to get on boats, trying to get visas to any off-continent destination. And Varian Fry showed up with $3,000 in his sock and he set about in a hotel called the Hotel Splendide near the train station, set about trying to find the people on his list. And that's where the story begins. And it sort of sets off on a very kind of hyper-local adventure in Marseille in which they ultimately rent a villa on the outskirts of the city that they use as a kind of way station for their refugee operation. But it's like a paradise villa in this paradise landscape of Provence. So... I like to say that the whole show is kind of a nightmare in paradise. Well, and yet what I think was also, you mentioned this list, and yet who's on this list are some of these people, as you alluded to a moment ago, but specifically it would be Marcel Duchamp and Max Stearns. Patrick Bertal. And I think that's part of what animates the show is you've got these intellectual lights of Europe who are trying to get out as well as other people and cameos by Peggy Guggenheim and other people, which makes it, you say, a little bit of a dark comedy as well, right? Or black comedy. Yeah, I mean, we definitely leaned into the style of the movies that were made at that time, especially the movies that were being made by German emigres, German Jewish emigres who were sitting in Hollywood watching what was happening in Europe and feeling desperate about it. And these kind of screwball comedies, I mean, movies made by Billy Wilder and Lubitsch, movies like The Great Dictator, Casablanca, To Be or Not To Be. These were movies that were reflecting in real time on what was happening and using humor to process the pain, right? And so we were really leaning into that kind of screwball melodrama style. But of course, this is like a movie from the 30s that's been set free from the studio because we shot everything on location and it's just such a gorgeous location. It was an incredible privilege to be able to shoot everything there. In many of the real locations, we shot in the real Comte de Mille, the real Farset Nicolas, the prison in town, the Hotel Splendide. The real villa had been torn down, but we shot in one nearby. And so I was personally attracted to the material because I felt like it really is about the way in which creativity and art and friendship and community are a salve in, in really dark times. And speaking of that, as all of us were watching Unorthodox during those first few months of the pandemic, you were busy working, it seems. Were you working on this show at that time? Or tell us a little bit about what was happening as we were enjoying your work. What was going on with you? So, yeah, I was writing this during the pandemic. And I think there's certain, I don't want to exaggerate this, but there's certain psychological similarities in the sense that at that time in Marseille, 
that was still that was the last free zone in Europe, right? Which means that technically it was safe. And yet there was this constant sense of impending danger, right? And yet they're looking around at this incredibly beautiful landscape and this beautiful city and they're living in this villa and et cetera. There was such a strange sense during that lockdown time, like things look the same, but they're not. It was beautiful spring, but it, but it was dangerous. I think when you're writing about the past, you're always writing about the present and was inspired. I knew this story growing up, but I was inspired to return to it as material for a TV show after there was an influx of so many refugees who moved to Berlin and to Germany in 2015 and 16. It was a very consuming thing. We were all volunteering in refugee camps and many people had refugees living in their home, helping people get settled. Our kids' school had many unaccompanied minors who were came into the school. So there was lots of ways in which here in Berlin, where I live, there was kind of massive collective rescue effort that was going on during that time. And it was really moving to me that people like me had had to flee Berlin, but that now that had come full circle and people were fleeing to Berlin for refuge. And so that reminded me of the story of Varian Fry. And it was, so then I started to work on it during the COVID period after I finished Unorthodox. But then the war in Ukraine started like three days after we started shooting. So something happened, which we just had never anticipated, which is that we ended up shooting it against the backdrop of a new war in Europe and a new refugee crisis. And one of the things I'm struck by, and you have a quote in the story this week about to this point that you say, and I'm thinking like, here and we've just sort of come through watching This Is Us, which is set in the future, and it's all this sort of science fiction, right? And dramatic travels across a country to escape. And as you say, like, you've got all the science fiction you need in history and that you don't need to, like, you want to work in the present, right? Which I think you're a realist, really. I guess. I mean, I'm an optimist, I think, or I'm at least looking for the stories that inspire me. I have liked working with historical material because I feel like, I mean, I used to say about Deutschland 83, the first show that I made that sounds like a premise for a science fiction story, right? Like there was a wall around Berlin and the people from Mitte, they couldn't get to Kreuzberg and nobody could cross the wall. And like the city was divided. And then what happened? It just, when you tell that story to children, it sounds like science fiction. And I think there's so many crazy things that have happened throughout history that lend themselves to retelling with a fanciful approach. I mean, I certainly take a fanciful approach to history. It's heightened. It's entertaining. I'm making up conversations, writing into the gray areas, but I'm true to the essence of the history. Well, Anna, thank you so much. Michael, I can't wait to spend the next six weeks just watching this show. Everyone is talking about it already and it hasn't even come out yet. So we wish you all the best and we thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's exciting. And I hope you all binge watch the whole thing on April 7th. Thanks. April 7th, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. I love her. I just want to go out to dinner with her and talk about television. Talk about television, talk about World War II, talk about history. And you're going to see it all on Netflix starting April 7th. So yeah, how exciting. That was, I can't wait. Right up my alley. If this show, if this show is one twentieth as good as Unorthodox, you're not going to be seeing me for the next three weeks. I'm just going to be watching that on repeat. Watching that on repeat. Speaking of other addictive things to watch and immerse oneself in, there's a very exciting development on the West End with a new production of Guys and Dolls. John Lahr, the longtime theater critic of The New Yorker and now theater critic for Airmail, is here to tell us all about this addictive, immersive experience. Welcome, John Lahr. 
Okay, John Lahr, there's always great stuff to talk about when it comes to the London theater scene, but right now we are talking about a musical that we all know and well, Guys and Dolls. First of all, what is happening with this new production and why is everybody talking about it? Well, Guys and Dolls is certainly one of the great musicals of the American musical tradition. And in my view, probably the best set of lyrics ever written for the musical because they're just ingenious and built to explore character. And they're not as showy as some of the other very witty Plesser's lyrics are just wonderful. But what's novel and unusual about this production is that it's taken the show off the proscenium and taken it into what they call in England an immersive production, or we would call, I think, an environmental production. And what that means is that the Bridge Theatre, under the direction of Nicholas Heitner, have taken all the seats out of the stalls and turned the whole downstairs into a playing area. And about 400 people a night stand, as they say, did in Shakespeare's time, to see the play, which happens around them and through them, so to speak. And then another 600 people sitting in seats or balcony seats around them look down on them. So essentially, if you're a paying customer, you have the choice of either standing and being in it, so to speak, or being above it and seeing the extraordinary traffic plan of how the play, which is acted out on platform areas that rise up and down. So the people on the ground floor can see everything. But above, you can see the incredible complexity of making this thing spin around like a spinning top in front of you. And it adds a, a, another dimension to it because, for instance, when the Salvation Army comes on the stage, it comes through the audience. The audience actually takes on the character, is a scenic element to the play. They are the New Yorkers. They are the people that the play is happening around. And so it becomes another kind of event. But the real thing that it manages is that it creates just an extraordinary exhilaration. And if you sit in the balcony, as I did, you literally see people jumping for joy. So it's a great accomplishment as a directorial feat to take something, which is, of course, the script and the songs oh, have been buffed to a high shine, but to put the musical in a new context and to still make it work and to add another element to it, because although the show ends on a proscenium stage with the actors taking a curtain call, in the English version, it doesn't end there. The actors come off the stage and into the crowd and end up actually dancing with the crowd and mingling among them. And the crowd is dancing and singing along. And the show, I would say, goes on another 15 or 20 minutes just with people partying. And joy is hard. Joy is very hard to make in the theater. And so my view is that when it's made, it should be honored. John, you're a man who we've all read your brilliant reviews for years, and you clearly are a man who chooses your words carefully. And the enthusiasm that comes through in this review this week is, all I can say is, luck be a lady that I'll get a ticket to it. Because, I mean, as you say, like, you talk about the audience and you say, I've never seen an ecstatic response quite like this. I mean, it sounds as though it transcends anything you've seen before. Well, it doesn't transcend anything I've seen, because I'm the son of a great comedian. I've seen in front of my father, Bert Lahr, I've seen people from the wings. I've seen people shoving handkerchiefs in their mouths to stop laughing. I've seen when I, when you, when I saw Pearl Bailey in Hello, Dolly, people went 
mad. They stood on their seats when she walked out among the crowd on the horseshoe stage. And the people next to that horseshoe stage threw their coats on the stage for her to walk on. This is a spontaneous sort of ecstatic response. So I've seen it before, but I've never seen it in England. The English are, as a, a group, not big on public expressions of extreme emotion. They applaud, they, some they stand, not in the sort of way that they do in a Broadway show. But it's up there with, the, I would say, the three or four experiences I've had in half a century of going to the theater on a regular basis. It was quite extraordinary to see people be beside themselves. We use that word, but that's what it is. You Somehow the chemistry of the songs, the performers, you really do set yourself aside and you're allowed to just be purely in the moment with this thing. And it takes powerful actors and a powerful energy, directing energy in this case, because Nick Heitner, who directed about a decade ago a very exceptional production of Carousel, which was done at Lincoln Center afterwards. This production, I'm pretty sure, will find a place in New York in a year or two, maybe at the Armory or some large space that can adapt to the sort of environmental production. We'll find an audience in America. But it's just wonderful to be beside yourself, taken outside your concerns, and really lifted. It's the only word I can use. I don't usually, I stay to watch the people dancing. I stayed for about 20 minutes as I write in my review in airmail. I took a photo of it because I don't want to forget it. It's so rare. Even my wife, who is a, a demure, I would say, lady, she was bopping around there on the aisles watching these people. It was really memorable. And you don't encounter that very often. John, it sounds like you're saying that this is worth a trip across the ocean. We have a lot of listeners in the U.S. Call before you come. I think that they're sold out until September, but I did tell friends of mine here in London and they called up on the same day and got two seats. I think it's absolutely worth coming to see if you can. The show is an American show. It is a show originally produced by a man called Fewer, directed by George S. Kaufman, written by Frank Lesser, and the book was by Abe Burroughs. It's Jewish. The Ewer is Jewish. And the songs are well sung by European cast, but the inflection, the attitude, the sort of mordancy loses some of the humor in the writing in this version. That said, the sum is greater than the part, so that the whole experience, my quibbles about some of the casting, some of the moments, but it's such an extraordinary technical accomplishment. I suppose I should say that they're probably not more than a baker's dozen of directors who can do a musical really well. There are. It's really hard to do. It's like being in a war. You've got to be a general and you're integrating so many things. It's really a complicated puzzle. And Heitner is one of those people who can do it. John, it's an incredible perspective you bring. Obviously, as you note in your review, you saw the first production in 1950 in New York City. So if you're the kid of a musical comedy star, I guess about the only advantage is you get to go to all these it plays early. Well, it's great to have your perspective across the years and to see your enthusiasm for this modern production right now. I think I speak, as I say, for everyone, like quite envious, and I'm sure everyone's going to be. There's two things to travel for this spring, which is the Vermeer, and now it seems to see Guys and Dolls. So That's a good trip. Yeah, just combine the two of them together. Exactly. But thank you for being here, John. It's a terrific review, and your insight are to be treasured. Pleasure. Bye-bye.
Thank you, John. Thank you. Okay, well, now that we've got all the delicious entertainment out of the way, Michael, we have to talk about serious matters. We are informed citizens of the world after all. That brings us to Andrew Rifkin. Michael, will you introduce him? Absolutely. Andrew Rifkin is a Russian journalist and screenwriter who was actually forced to emigrate after Putin's invasion of Ukraine. He's joining us today from Tel Aviv, where he's reporting. And he has a terrific piece of reporting this week about one year into the war and how Putin has managed to avoid the sanctions and not just Putin, but a few of his wealthy friends. And let's bring them on the show now. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Good to be here. A lot has changed since you left Russia. In your column this week, Moscow Now, we're calling it. Take us through some of the changes. How are you keeping abreast of what's happening at home? Well, things do get through. There's a number of news outlets, independent Russian news outlets who are Well, I mean, to say the least, they're extremely courageous in what they do. So they still operate inside of Russia. A few of their correspondents are there. Most of them are anonymous at this point. But I would say for the purpose of this specific article, it was only personal connections via Telegram, the widely used encrypted messaging app that I got all my information, all my sources. And it was all done via voice messages, also as a measure of security, so as not to sort of screenshot whatever is said and forward it to Russian security services. So mostly it's, I would say it's through personal connections that I get the info that's coming from Russia. Andrew, so a year ago, Russia is hit by sanctions. And as you show this week, Putin might be having trouble on the battlefield, but on the home front, he's worked very hard to not let the sanctions become a part of everyday life. All these brands, they left Russia in protest over the war in Ukraine, over Russia's invasion. A lot of these brands, they're not able to work in Russia since Russian banking system is cut off from the world banking system, et cetera, et cetera. So it would just make it impossible. And what's happened in Russia for a lot of these brands, they sold whatever assets they had in Russia or they wrote them off. They seized operations. They left the Russian market. But I would say to make it so that the Russian consumer wouldn't feel any pain. And if he or she used to go to McDonald's and say, get a Big Mac, a lot of effort was put into having this ability to go to a place. It wouldn't be called McDonald's, but still you could go somewhere to that same place. The restaurant, the fast food restaurant would be the same address and you would have somewhat of a Big Mac, so to speak. A lot of what happened was essentially rebranding where, for instance, if we take McDonald's, the fast food chain left Russia, but almost every single one of its restaurants is now rebranded as Kusni Tochka, which translates as tasty, period. Literally the name of McDonald's in Russia right now, they've renamed almost every single position on the menu that they had. So Big Mac is the big hit now. It looks the same from what I haven't been fortunate enough to try it, but from what I hear, everything is tastes pretty much the same except for the bun. Like they still can't get the bun right, but otherwise you could have a near McDonald's experience when you go to these places. And this was done, of course, because the Russian consumer, especially the Moscow consumer, in my article, I do cover the Moscow consumer for the most part. The Russian consumer is used to a certain quality of life, to fast food chains, to glossy magazines, cars, et cetera, et cetera. Russia was a robust consumer economy before the war hit. And a lot of effort was put into sort of keeping it afloat, even if it would be under a different 
different name. The impact of sanctions is is that it's, as you're noting here in the story this week, it's created this kind of parallel universe for the consumer within Russia, right? But I'm interested too, as you get, Putin wants to keep the people happy, but he also wants to keep the one percenters, as it were, of, of Russia happy too, the people who still want their Mercedes S-Class. And if those luxury goods aren't still coming in, the oligarchs or what remains of them are not going to be so happy. Tell us a little bit about what's known as the parallel import decree, which seems to be a creative way that Putin has allowed that sort of high-end economy to keep functioning, right? Of course. Well, first, it's a very interesting dichotomy that's going on. So the Russian propaganda, what you would see on television, in articles, et cetera, et cetera, it criticizes, obviously, Western society, Western values. One of these key values that's being criticized in the Russian media propaganda is consumerism. Consuming is bad. Russia is all about the high ideals, the soul. And in the West, all they want to do is buy stuff. So that's the kind of message that's aimed towards essentially low-paid Russians. But the situation is entirely different on the ground for those Russians with money. Now, these people, regardless of the war, some of them support the war, some of them don't care, but what they do is they want to keep their way of life, their luxury way of life. And this time we're not talking about McDonald's or even Starbucks. We're talking about an S-Class Mercedes or even a Maybach, which is the more popular Mercedes in the Moscow crowd. What happened was that this decree, Putin's decree, it allowed the import of all these goods without any responsibility from the manufacturer of these goods. So say if Mercedes officially stopped shipping cars to Russia and could theoretically Theoretically, sue if someone was to import a Mercedes car to Russia. What Putin's decree did is, first of all, it allowed anyone to import a certain number of goods, among them luxury goods and cars and so forth. And it also gave the importers protection from liability. So if before, if you were to import a new Mercedes S-Class into Russia, you couldn't do it. It was illegal. Well, now it is. Now, if we take that car, that very expensive vehicle, you can't buy it. As a Russian, officially, you cannot buy it. Even if you go to Europe with a Russian passport, you walk into a Mercedes dealership and you say, I want this car. I got the money right here. They can't sell it to you due to sanctions imposed by the European Union. So what they did was a number of these alternative chains popped up, alternative supply chains. And a lot of them work through what used to be official Mercedes dealerships. They're still Mercedes dealerships. They even have the letters official written on them, and yet they're not since the company left. And what they try to do is to have, for your experience, to be exactly the same as it was. So you come into the dealership, you order a car, you want it customized, you want red leather seats and and blue exterior, whatever. Now, they don't have the car, but what they do is they take your money and then this interesting, new, shady, often illegal supply chain kicks in with a number of these intermediaries who make it happen for you, who make this car come to Moscow. Dealership calls someone in Europe, a EU citizen, that transfers the money for the car. That EU citizen calls used car dealership that he knows and asks that car dealership to actually go to the official Mercedes store, to the like legit 
European dealership and buy that car. They do it. And once they buy that car, that car is now officially used, even if it's still in, pla in plastic wrap and has like 10 miles on it. And for used cars, the rules are, of course, entirely different because that's a loophole. And that car then goes back through a number of hands. It could be sold officially for 50 bucks or something like that. It's never considered new. It does not fall under EU sanctions. It has a very interesting way of getting into Russia. It can go through Kazakhstan or Dubai or even Poland, Japan. It's reminiscent of drug trade, actually, of how a brick of cocaine would get from Colombia to New York, where it could theoretically go through Amsterdam or like all across the world. The same thing is happening, for instance, in the car market. Now, when this car gets to Russia, it costs twice as much for the consumer because every single one of these intermediaries, they get a 10 to 15 percent cut, of course, from the price. So, for instance, an S-Class would be, I don't know, 100 to 150 thousand dollars. You would end up paying 250 $300,000 for that car. The most interesting thing about this is how the Russian budget still wins. The only loser in this situation, in this entire supply chain, is actually the company that, that left Russia, Mercedes, and the European Union that impose sanctions because they don't get anything. Only these intermediaries get the money, they get their cut, and then the Russian government and it gets the biggest cut of them all because the import duty on cars, and it doesn't matter if they're considered brand new or not, all that matters is the age of the car. So if it's a 2023 Benz, it's taxed as new. And the tax is at least 50%. It could be 50 to 70% actually. And that money goes to Putin. That money goes to the Russian budget and it fills up Russia's war chest. So what they created is a system where if you want luxury goods, for instance, a vehicle, which is hard to import, you do get it. You pay twice as much for it. And the Russian government makes a lot more money off of your desire to sort of roam Moscow in that latest Benz. Well, how do you see this playing out in the next few months? From what I'm hearing from the people that I'm speaking to, the situation is gradually becoming worse. So, and Putin's priorities, of course, they're shifting. They're shifting towards the war. And most of all, they're shifting towards keeping himself in power. So I would say if half a year ago or so, a little longer, when this parallel import decree was signed into law, Putin was thinking about the Russian consumer, the Russian 1%, much more than he is now. Now it's a little different. All these rich people, the Russia's biggest companies, they now have to pay a mandatory one-time payment for the war. There's going to be more taxes. And of course, the consumer economy, it's now become less of a priority as the war rages on and as Russia is losing at this war. So when the war started, one of the goals was for Muscovites, for the oligarchs to feel like it's everything is business as usual. Right now, the goals have shifted and I feel like the situation is going to become worse. There's still going to be people who are going to buy their Mercedeses and Prada dresses and jewelry and so on, but it's just not going to be such a mass phenomenon as it was this first year of war. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your incredible insight here and this fascinating story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Terrific. Thank you, nice Andrew. You too. 
All right, Michael. Well, before we go off into this fabulous weekend, do you have anything at all you can recommend to us? Besides Transatlantic, yes. Have you seen Lucky Hank yet? No, I've been too busy watching Ted Lasso, Michael. Tell me. Okay. Lucky Hank, for all of you who haven't seen it, it's if you're fans of Bob Odenkirk and his work in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, he's back with his new show. It's a satire where he plays this past his prime frustrated novelist who's chairing an English department in this kind of going nowhere town in Pennsylvania. I've only seen the first episode, but I'm liking it a lot. It's based on a Richard Russo novel from some years back, but I'm going to go back and try episode two. It's called Lucky Hank and it's on AMC Plus. And you, my dear? Well, not to tread on the territory of John Lahr, but thanks to my theater group, I did see an incredible new play last week at the Barbican. It's called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. And this is the new production from the theater company Complicité. And it's a it's a fantastic production that is based on the novel of the same name by the Nobel Prize winning writer Olga Tokarczuk. It was dark. It was funny. It was slightly debauched. It was kind of everything you want in a play, but the production itself was very avant-garde in a good way under the direction of Simon McBurney. So I highly recommend it. It is once again called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead at the Barbican. It is running for another week or so. So if you're going to get over here to try to get Guys and Dolls tickets, highly recommend you see that as well. All right. On that note, we thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful spring weekend. Michael, will you please read us out? I will, because it's just Guys and Dolls everywhere. If you want to know what's up in the daily news, I'll tell you what's in the daily news. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday. So please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.